You can be turning to first John chapter five. I've said in ceremonies, um, Fijian cultural cer- ceremonies, um, Hindu ceremonies that are full of ritualistic actions and words that I recognize repeated over and over. I remember one particular lengthy uh, ceremony out in the village where three whale's tooths were passed back and forth amongst the people as they talked about whatever they were talking about. And interestingly, when I asked them, well, what are you saying? What's going on? What does that mean? A lot of times I would get responses like, well, that's that's just the way we do things. That's how we do things. And our lives are full of symbols and symbolism that sometimes we don't, you know, we look at someone else's culture. We ask the question and we don't know that they don't know the answer. And yet the tr- that's true with us. Uh, some we might know, some we may not know. Why do you wear a gold or a ring on your finger? Well, well, because you're married. But why that finger? Why not this finger or this finger? You may or may not know the answer to that. Why do you put a Christmas tree up in your house, a tree in your house? And why do you put lights on it? Well, it's just the way we do things. And then you hide Easter eggs or eggs on Easter and children. find you don't know why you do these things. They're all symbols and symbolism. And sometimes we, we lose the meaning of those. And that's true even with what we just did, the Lord's Supper. We take the Lord's Supper and we talk about blood and we talk about body and we talk about bread. And, and you know, we're deaf. And I'm always, especially during the Lord's Supper, often, very often, I will think as I'm listening to the speaker, as I'm sitting there taking this little bit of cracker and this little bit of grape, grape juice, I'll think, what would a person who doesn't know anything about Christianity, what would they think of? And that's a growing population, by the way, in America. What would they think if they came in and saw us go through that symbolism? And maybe they would ask us, so what, what do you mean blood? What do you mean body? What does, what does that mean? And I'm wondering if we would have an answer to that question. I introduced that because that's what we're going to be talking about today. We're going to be talking about water and blood and spirit today from this passage. Before we read it, though, this section, verses 6 through 12 of chapter 5, actually brings to completion the book of 1 John, the letter of 1 John. But, like all good preachers, John has a few concluding remarks after he's finished. So he continues in verses 13 through 21. So don't get too excited that we're actually concluding 1 John. We're going to conclude this section. And I think this is where John has is ending this section. John is circular in his thinking. And what I've been saying about him being circular, we would expect that if this is the end, he should be tying it back to the beginning because he's he's speaking in circles and And he's expanding on what he has said previously. And he does. He comes full circle here from chapter 1. He comes all the way back, full circle, back around to chapter 5. And he's bringing us back to 
chapter 1 again. And I have a little circle on the screen that will come up in a second that will show you that. But he begins by stating his fundamental thesis. And he wraps it up in these verses in 6 through 12. I would include verse 13 in that. I would add 13 into this concluding remarks. But verse 13, I think, as I was thinking about this week, it, it summarizes the entire chapter, or the entire book, excuse me, not the entire chapter, but the entire book. Um, as we read this in a, in a few moments, we're going to find that it's difficult to understand. But we're not going to get lost in the weeds. I'm not going to go to a lot of process of explaining them. I'm just going to go right to what I think it means instead of trying to get in the weeds and explain it. But before we get into chapter 5, verse 6, turn over to chapter 1, because we're going back to this fundamental thesis that he begins with, his fundamental thoughts, what he's trying to talk about. And he's tying it up in chapter 5. But let's read verses 1 through 4 of First John, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testified to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard. So that you may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship was with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. You know, when we go back to that section, the, the key word that comes out to me, one of the key words that stands out is this word testify, or witness, or bear witness. And so we're going to look at, starting in, as we end chapter 5, uh, this thought, we're going to be, go back to the beginning and look at the witnesses of chapter 1. And this is, this is fundamental to our faith, and it's at the same time an astonishing thought if we can, if we can grasp what, what John is saying. John begins by making a bold claim here in chapter 1. He says, he, he says in these verses that he is talking about that which was from the beginning. And I believe, as I stated in that first lesson or second lesson that we that we looked at in this section, that he is talking about not the beginning of time, but he's talking about the beginning of Jesus ministry. He's bringing us back to the first part of Jesus ministry. And in the gospel, he his gospel, which is different than his letter, the gospel of John, he again says something very similar, but different. And it's an astonishing claim when he says that. The G, basically, he's saying the Jesus that I knew, the man that I knew was in the beginning. And if you hear those words in the beginning and you're a Jew, if you're a Hebrew, if you're an Israelite, immediately something will come to your mind. And what will come to your mind is Genesis 1 verse 1, the very first words of the Old Testament of the Hebrew Bible. Uh, four score and seven years ago, almost every person will know what the next two words are. Everyone's sitting there thinking, do I? <laughs> our fathers, right? Something like that. You know, that's part of our heritage. That's part of our, our you, know, you know, we know Abraham Lincoln said those words. 
And so in, in the same way, a Jew would, if you said in the beginning, he would say God. In the beginning, God. John says in the beginning was the word. And then he says, and the word was God. This is in this gospel. And then he goes on to show in verse 14 of the gospel that the word became flesh and lived among us. He's basically saying God was in the beginning before time when, when everything was created. God was there and the word was God. And this word became flesh, became a human. And he dwelt among us, which is mind blowing just to think about that. And then he goes on in verse 17, I believe. And he says that he brought us. He was full of grace and truth. And then in verse 18, he says, and no one has seen the father. No one has seen God, but God, the only one, the one and only Jesus, who is at the father's side, has exposed him, has drawn him out, has shown him to us. Astonishing claims here. And then he picks up in his letter. He later on writes his letter. I believe his letter was written after his, the gospel. Basically, he was showing in the, in the uh, gospel, God became man in order to show us what God's like. What's God like? John's answer is look at Jesus. God became man in order to show us God. And then he picks up this testimony in his letter that we just read. He said, listen, this is what I have seen with my eyes. And he doesn't use my. He says we. He includes some other people here. We have seen this with our eyes. We have looked at this. We've stared at this. We've, we've contemplated it. We have, it's not a casual glance. We've, we've carefully looked at this. Our hands have touched. And so what we have seen and heard and listened to and examined and touched, we proclaim to you. We testify to you. And it concerns the word of life. The same word, the word of God, the word of life. And he says, the life appeared, we've seen it, we testify to, we proclaim to you the eternal life which came from the Father. He says, I've testified to this. I bear witness to this, to this person who I say is life with a capital L. Not just living, but life with a capital L and everything that, that means. And the whole point of his testimony, he says... I'm telling you this because I want you to have a relationship. I want you to have fellowship with the Father, with God, which is another mind-blowing thought that you can have a relationship with the God of the universe. I know this is kind of old hat for people who are Christians, but step out of your, your Christian culture for a minute and go to any other culture in the world and try and listen to this through the ears of someone who, is, who has heard it for the first time. And they say, you can have a relationship, a good relationship, with the creator of the universe. And if people don't laugh at the joke, because it'll sound like a joke, they'll just stand back and say, well, how in the world is that possible? John is saying this. He says, not only you're going to have this relationship with the Father, with God, but with his Son. He has a Son. And what that means... Jesus Christ, and he names him. You know, as we look at this, you have to be, you have to think, all right, he is testifying. He is a, he's a witness. What makes a reliable witness? John includes other. He says, we have, we have uh, seen this. We have heard this. 
He is probably speaking about the other apostles that he was with. And I think perhaps maybe up to around 500 other people who had spent a lot of time with him. We, we find that in, uh, as Paul wrote his letter to the Corinthians, he says there were 500 people that Jesus appeared to after his resurrection. And so there was other people. It wasn't just the 12. There were many other people who were followers of Jesus. And the claims that he makes, not only in this letter, but in his gospel, makes me ask this. What makes him reliable? Why should I believe him? Why do we believe anyone? Why do we take anyone's testimony about anything? We determine that based on basically three things. And maybe these are things that came to my mind. There may be more. Character, motive, and cooperating witnesses. In other words, you look at a person's character. When they say, I saw something, I heard something, we look at their character. We look at their motives. Why are they saying this? What's their motive behind this? And are there other witnesses who agree with this, who are standing behind him and saying, yes, that's true. In our courts of law, if, we're, if a reliable witness is brought forth, you'll notice that the lawyer of the opposition attempts to discredit that witness. Someone comes up and says, I saw this. I heard this. And the lawyer for the opposition comes in and they try, they start by trying to uh, tear down the character of the person who is, who is, uh, who is the witness. Uh, they'll do it different ways. Everyone has character faults. Everyone has character faults. Everyone has said something they wish they hadn't said. Everyone has done something they wish they haven't done. And if the lawyer of the opposition knows that, they'll park right there. And they'll spend time there and say, did you not once say... Did you not once do this? And they'll build their whole case on that you're not a reliable witness because one time you told a lie. One time you stole a pack of gum from the grocery store. Whatever it is, you've done something that you shouldn't have done. You said something you shouldn't say. And based on that, I'm going to tear down your character. But we look at it, character. And, and those who are in on a jury know that, well, you know, not, not everyone is a perfect person. So they listen to this, this, uh, this witness. Um, they'll talk about the circumstance. Well, maybe the circumstance wasn't right. Maybe it was too dark. You, you thought you saw something that you really didn't see. It was too dark at the time. Or your emotions were so stirred up that you couldn't really uh, uh, look at something objectively. You saw something that you thought you saw, but in the midst of all the turmoil that was going on, you missed something. Your emotions just weren't there and you weren't able to think objectively. Yet every day in courts around the country... And really throughout the world, people are convicted based on what they call reasonable evidence. Or they're released based on what? Reasonable doubt. There was reasonable doubt that says, okay, well, they didn't do it. Or there was reasonable evidence that said, yes, they did it. And we go to the Gospel of John. And as we study the Gospel of John, if you remember way back then... I said several points along, the, along the, the journey through John. I said, you are sitting in a juror's seat. This is John's purpose of writing. He's writing something here. And he says, I want you to look at the evidence. I'm presenting evidence to you. I'm telling you about this person. And I want you to look at this evidence. And I want you to examine it. And I want you to take these words that I'm telling you, not as holy words that you can't question but words that can be put to the test. I want you to look at what I'm saying, and I want you to think about it, and I want you to question it, 
And I want you to test the validity of what I'm saying. When I was 19 years old, I began to examine my inherited faith. I remember it very well. It was a, it was a mark in my life that I went from, I think I, I began to be an adult at this point. I began to think on my own. I inherited my faith, and it was a good inheritance. My parents are here right now. And they taught me about Jesus very young. And they taught me about God, and they brought me to church, and all that was good. But at 18, 16, 17, 18, it was my parents' faith that I was following. I was listening to what my parents said. But around 19 years old, I began thinking, what if they were wrong? Not on purpose. What if they just missed the points? What if they took, took some evidence at face value and really didn't examine it? What if they were wrong? And those are good questions. I, I encourage everyone to do that. You look at it and you sit there and say, but is that true? Is what I inherited true or is there some things I need to throw out? What do I need to do? And so for the last 40 years or so, I've continued to examine my faith. I haven't stopped. I've never just stopped and said, you know, I, I've done enough study. I know enough. I, I totally believe. I've continued to examine the evidence before me. And let me say this. I have found the evidence overwhelming at this point. Historically, the documents, and I'll talk about those in a little while. Experientially, the experience of putting this into practice, the reasonableness of it. All the evidence points consistently to the fact, in my opinion, based on what I've looked, that Jesus is the Christ. He's the Son of God. And that is a... And I don't say those words flippantly. I say them having examined them from a person's standpoint who, don't, who does not believe in God, who does not believe in Jesus. One of my ancient studies was going to, was with a, a friend who was an atheist, and I said, let's, let's look at the book of John together. And he said, I don't believe in God. I said, I'm not asking you to. I'm saying, let's just see what one man said about God. Let's look at this as a historical document. Let's just look at it together. And by the time we got to chapter 6, he believed in God as we slowly and carefully went through that. But we go to 1 John chapter 5 now. We'll finally get to the, to the text. And we see that God is the ultimate witness. We were looking at... Um, John as one of the witnesses and, and the people that he was with. But God is a witness, too. Let's read these together. And as we read it, let me just remind you, this is very symbolic. And it's going to be, um, it's going to be difficult, difficult words. But listen carefully. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. It is the Spirit who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and the three are in agreement. We accept man's testimony, but God's testimony is greater because it is the testimony of God, which he has given about his Son. Anyone who believes in the Son of God has this testimony in his heart. Anyone who does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because he has not believed the testimony God has given about his Son. And this is the testimony God 
has given us eternal life, and this life is in the Son, in his Son. He who has the Son has life, and he who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Someone has said that that is the, probably, especially verse 6 and 7, are the most difficult verses in 1 John and maybe the most difficult verses in the New Testament. And as we read that, I just thought, how would you like to be assigned to preach from this t- text? Well, I assigned myself when I got myself into this, uh, into this text. And this is one reason I like to preach through a book, because it forces you to look at passages that you may never look at and say, well, what is this really saying? What is, what is John saying here? This is a passage that would be easier to skip than to deal with. But the key to understanding any passage is to look at what the writer is saying as a whole, what he's been saying the whole time. And, and then based on what he's been saying this whole time, what is he saying right here? Now, I'm not going to explain the four different ways or three extra different ways that people have interpreted this passage um, and the three ways that I think are incorrect. If you want to come to me later and say, well, what are those? We can talk about that. And I'm not going to spend any time on the footnotes. Some of you have footnotes. Uh, Some of you may have it in your text. As we read along in your footnote, it says uh, verse 7 and 8, late manuscripts of the Vulgate Testament. You know, and it tells you these extra words there. And I'm not going to get into those, not because I don't have an answer to them or not, not because I'm afraid to answer those things. But just as a matter of time and distraction, I want to get to the main point. If that bothers you, let me put it this way. If it bothers you that the Vulgate has added some words to the text and you don't even maybe you don't even know what the Vulgate is. If that bothers you, I'll sit down and talk to you about it. It is a really simple answer to it, but we're not going to go into it. But let's look at what it does say here. He talks about three witnesses here. John points to three witnesses and he describes them in verse eight as the spirit, the water and the blood. Very Strange, isn't it, to hear those, the spirit, the water, and the blood. And my first question is, well, what are they witnesses to? What are they witnesses? Okay, they're witnesses. Great. But what are they witnesses about? What are they witnesses to? And the answer is right there in verse 9. He says, about his son. The water, the blood, and the spirit are about his son. And what has he said about his son? Well, if you were with us the last few weeks, chapter 5, verse 1. Chapter 5, verse 5, tell you, mention two things. They say everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, that's one of them. And verse 5, Jesus is the Son of God. This is what the water, the blood, and the Spirit are witnessing to, that Jesus is his Son and that Jesus is the Christ. And this is not only the only place he does this. If you go all the way back to chapter 1, Verse 3, he begins to point this out. Verse 7, he points it out. Verse, chapter 2, verse 1, he points it out. I mean, and all the way through, just go through, quickly scan through First John, and you'll see that he refers to Jesus over and over and over. Maybe I'll count them and let you know next week. Over and over that he's the Christ, he's the Son of God. Verse 6, he says, he describes him as Jesus Christ. And any time you see those together... There's a there's a point. Jesus Christ means Jesus man. That's his human name. So anytime you see the word Jesus and if it's by itself, he's talking about his his humanity, that he was a man. And Christ refers to him as uh, as the God's anointed. The son uh, refers to him as divine. And all through this uh, book and all through the New Testament, 
He is continually shown to be human, God, the Messiah. This has been John's proclamation that Jesus is both Lord and Christ. And he's given this testimony. And this is something like 50 or 60 years after John has been, had walked with Jesus, had spent time with Jesus, had eaten with Jesus, had slept in the fields as they went through Galilee together, sat on the boat, listened to him teach. Fifty, sixty years later, he says, you know, he was Christ. He was the Messiah. He was Son of God. And now he says, that's what I saw. I'm going to present you the ultimate witness now. And it's not me. It's God. Three witnesses that come from God himself. He, first of all, goes to this witness of water. In verse 6 and 7, he refers to water. I believe that this is talking about Jesus' baptism. This is the beginning of Jesus' ministry when Jesus was immersed by John the Baptist, who we refer to as John the, the baptizer of the Baptist. He began his ministry at that time. Prior to that, about 30 years, he had worked as a carpenter. He had uh, taken care of his mother. He had taken care of his younger brothers and sisters. But at 30 years old, he went up down to Judea and he was baptized. And Matthew, Mark and Luke, all three of them saw this as so significant that they recorded it. And it's rare that all three recorded the same thing. But they said at this point, when Jesus was baptized... And he came up, there was a voice, and it said, This is my son, whom I love, with him I am well pleased. And something like a dove, we we just don't know what it was, something like a dove, whatever that means, came and descended on him, came upon him. And so he says, at this point, God himself spoke. Later in Acts, one of the requirements of filling the place of Judas, who had died, says you, you, need to, you needed to be, the, anyone who takes this place had to be with him from his baptism until now. Now, why? Why from his baptism? Because they needed to see that. There was something that happened, something spectacular, a voice from heaven. <laughs> I mean, I wonder if we, if we heard that, if we looked around and saw the expressions on people's faces. I mean, what in the world's going on that this voice from heaven, from the sky, from, from out here says, this is my son. I believe that's what he's talking about. This is God's witness that he was his son, that he was the Messiah. And then we have the witness of blood. And it's also referred to in verse six and seven. I believe this refers to his sacrificial death, the cross, because this marks an end of his ministry. The, his baptism marked the beginning and the the uh, the cross marked the end of his ministry as far as completing his task that he came on earth. You know, the last thing he said, remember the last words that Jesus spoke on the cross? It is finished. It is finished. And he's not saying I'm dead. He's not saying I am physically finished. He's saying the task that God sent me to accomplish, it's finished. I did it. I completed what God has sent me to to uh, complete. And even then, we see God's witness on the cross. Everything that was stated in the Old Testament was accomplished. We see darkness. That doesn't happen in the middle of the day. 
Some people try and say, oh, it was, it was an eclipse. No, it wasn't an eclipse. It was hours of darkness like night. And, a, and the curtain in the temple was torn in half. That doesn't just happen. For it to be torn, a huge curtain in half, those were supernatural events that took place. And so we see Jesus' death. We see the witness of God that his purpose of shedding his blood was to remove the sin of the world. That's what his purpose was. And then we have the witness of the Spirit, verse 7. The third witness of the Spirit is not a I don't think it's a mystical sort of way, uh, a mystical sort of uh, uh, thing that happened. But we see power taking place, something mighty that takes place. And we see it in several ways. The Spirit is evident, as we saw from his baptism when, when God spoke. Uh, the Spirit was evident in his resurrection. I mean, how does someone, how is someone raised from the dead? Well, the Spirit's power was in there. It validated his life. It validated the purpose of his death. In Acts chapter 2, we see the Spirit coming on, on uh, the people and on the day of Pentecost, Pentecost and saying, look, I, I am validating what they're saying when the Spirit came upon them. Over in Romans chapter 11, excuse me, chapter 8, verse 11, he says it this way. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead... Is living in you. He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. This validation of the spirit. The spirit testified about Jesus throughout his life. Read the gospel of John. Read the gospel of Matthew if you're uh, tired of John. Read Mark. And we see these these miracles coming over and over again. And it's, it's the spirit's validity that who this person was was his son, God's son. This testimony of the Spirit continues through the Scriptures, the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies in his life and in his death. The testimony continues not only through the Scriptures, but as people live out their lives in this abiding relationship, this fellowship with the Father and the Son, life-changing things happen to us. And it's the Spirit validating that, that, that this is true. Some of us in this room have, can look and say, I've made some changes in my life that are based not just on my willingness to do it, but some kind of power has given me, God has given me power to make changes. And that's the spirit. My desires. You know, sometimes we make changes, but our desires are still sinful. Have you, have, have, have you, you know, okay, I'm not going to do X, but I still really want to, you know. But some of us have lived and put into practice long enough that we don't even want to anymore. Have you experienced that? You think about it. Yeah, I can think about some things that I once had a desire, a craving for, and now it's not even a temptation. It's not there anymore. And it's not because I'm such a good person. It's because God is working within my life. That's his spirit. We see this in John chapter 15, verse 26. Jesus said, when the counselor comes, which he's talking about the spirit there, whom I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth. He refers to him as the spirit of truth again, who goes out for, from the father. He will testify about me. And we see this testimony all throughout the scriptures and we see it in our lives. Water and blood. 
When we think about him coming in water, by water, his baptism, the beginning of his teaching ministry, think about this. Jesus did not come as a teacher only. A lot of people read the writings, of, uh, writings about Jesus. They hear what he says, and they say, you know, he's a marvelous teacher. He said some marvelous things, and that's true. But he also came to fix our sin problem, a problem we can't handle on our own, referring to the blood, his sacrificial death. He did not come to teach us some good things. He didn't come to teach us how to live our lives or how to have a better life or things that we can do to rise above the struggles of the world and to better ourselves. That's not Jesus' purpose of teaching. Because if we do that, then our life is man-centered once again. We begin to focus on ourselves and say, if we look at Jesus' teaching, it says, well, Jesus said, do this, therefore I will do this and I will have a better life. We become a man-centered gospel once again. Jesus had to fix the sin problem. He had to go to the cross in order to give us life. And this is how. This is, this, he says, this is how you live. You can't do it on your own. You need to have the blood. You need to have his death so that you can have life. So now, he says, you have life. It's time to learn to live. I want you to think about this. He does not say, learn to live in order to have life. Every philosophy says that. Go to any book in the help, you know, self-help, self-help section, and you read these. They say, do these things so that you will have a good life, so you will be successful. Every religion that I know of says the same thing. Do these things, live this way, so that you will have life. Christianity is the only teaching. I don't, don't want to even call it a religion. The only life that's, that turns that around and says, look, we're going to start this way. I'm going to give you life so you learn to live. It's a big, there's a big difference there. I'm going to give you life because you're dead in your sins. I'm going to give you life. And then once you have life, there's going to be a process that's going to help you learn how to live. If you have that flipped around backwards, you're going to have a frustrating life. If you're trying to do things and do things in order to live, you're going to be, you're going to be flipped on your head. God said, you, you had death and you needed life, so I give you life. So now that you can, you can learn to live. God's testimony is greater, he says, John says. John says, I gave you my personal testimony. I told you what I saw. I told you what I heard. I told you who I ate with, who I touched. But here is a greater testimony than that testimony. I saw this with my own eyes, but I'm giving you a greater testimony. It's God's testimony. And then he says bluntly, if you don't accept that, you're calling God a liar. Strong words. Not my words, God's word. You're calling God a liar. If you take the testimony of water from his baptism all the way through his life to his death and how the spirit works that in his scriptures, how he works that in your lives. And if you say no to that, you're calling God a liar. Which brings me to this. But how can I know? How can I really know? 
You're talking about testimony, but how can I know? Tell me how to know. Let me tell you, there's two ways. First of all, you look at the external evidence that's laid out before you. And it's like any other historical document. How do you know there was an Alexander the Great? Let's Let's come to... uh, the end of the 19th century. How do you know there was a Frederick Douglass? How do you, no one alive today was alive when, when he died. How do you know there was a George Washington? How do you know any of those things? How do you really know? And yet we'll say, no, there's no doubt. Why? There's document evidence. We have writings that talk about them. We have, we have writings that some of them even wrote themselves. We have these documents. And what we call the Bible, this this book here that lays before me, has stood up to the scrutiny of history and critics for hundreds of years. Many people have tried to invalidate the documents, have tried to say, well, it's just it's it's it can't be right because there are so many errors, et cetera, et cetera. But I want to say without going to great depth that I've never seen strong proof against the validity of the writings of the Scripture. And I've studied it in depth. I have never seen anything that is close to disproving the validity of the Scriptures. Bart Ertman, who you don't even need to know his name, (laughs) he said there's 10,000 mistakes in the Bible. And some people take that like a fish hook on the back. Oh, there's 10,000 mistakes. Okay, okay, I I have to just... Throw that out. I have to throw out all these documents because there's 10,000 mistakes. First of all, that was a very foolish, and if you think more than an inch deep, and I don't know how someone, someone can make a statement like that, it, it's not very deep thinking. And I can go into detail about that later. But, you know, some of the mistakes are he left out the word and. In fact, the mistakes validate that these documents are true. You know why? Because if there were no scribal errors, if everything was perfect, then we'd say someone set this up. It's been set up because there's no mistakes. And we all know that if I'm copying from and I and I do this when I study the scriptures, I copy it out word for word. I go there and I write it. And many times I'll make a mistake. I'll leave out a word. I'll I'll leave out the letter S. Dear friends, I'll look back and say it says dear friend. Oh, my goodness. I'll put the little S back in there. It was a mistake. Those are the kind of mistakes that he says are so terrific. Actually, it validates the documents. And we can know like 99.9% that what we read in, the, in your Greek text, in your Hebrew text, is what was written. And then our translations are so good. There's so many different types of translations that help us out, too. The documents have stood the test of, sign, of time. John has given us this validation through this historical writing in his, doc, in his testimony. He says, I saw this. I heard it. He laid it out for us to examine it. I believe that's John's historical writings that he sits there. And I look at those, and it's amazing. It validates that he's the Son of God. And secondly, there's this internal evidence. And how it works in your life. If you look, we're talking about translations. If you look in verse 10, it says, Anyone who believes in the Son of God has this testimony in his heart. 
the NIV, this is the NIV. And I like the NIV because it's very modern. It helps us to understand modern English. But those words are not in the original. All right. Some of your translations will say in himself. And there's a difference. Let me explain the difference. In your heart is very subjective. It's very feeling oriented. I love you with my heart. With all my heart. What are we talking about? We're talking about feelings, emotions. And if we read that this way, anyone who believes that Jesus is the Son of God has this testimony in his heart. He just feels it's right. He feels that God is there. He feels. And for those who are struggling with their faith and those who are logical thinkers say, get away from that because there's nothing solid there. It's okay to have the feeling, okay? But that's not the evidence. Your feelings are not evidence. Your feelings are feelings. That's all they are. And they're good and they're bad and they're mixed and they're neutral. But they're feelings. And to feel that Jesus is in your heart doesn't mean that he is in your heart. All right? You can feel it, but it may not be true. What he is saying this, he says, in himself. And what he means by that is this. You know how it works in your life. You know in yourself, as you begin to put these things into practice, you know it works. You know kindness works because when you put it into practice, it works. God said, be kind. Jesus said, be kind. Jesus said, give and it will be given to you. And when you put that into practice, it works. You get back just like Jesus said. When, he, when, when the Bible says, be patient, be, be love, as we've studied in depth on what that means. When the, when the scripture says that, when Jesus says that, and we put it into practice, when we do it, we say, you know, that works. And when we do the opposite and we're selfish and we're ungiving and we, we uh, don't serve other people, we, know, we see how this, this crushes us emotionally. It hurts us. You know it in your closest relationships. You know it in your casual relationships. This works. And this is part of the testimony. In myself, I know this because it's working in my life. When I obey God's commandments, when I do what he says, it works. And then further, God gives his own testimony in addition to those things. From the baptism of Jesus, as I have said, through his life, where even his enemies looked at him and said, we can't find fault with him. We can't find fault. And so I challenge you, read through the scripture and see if you can find fault in Jesus. To his death that took care of our sins, to his resurrection which proved he was God. The evidence is so strong, the witnesses are so rock solid, that to de deny the evidence is to call the witnesses liars. John, you're a liar. This document is a lie. What God did is a lie. That's your only choice. It's either a lie or it's the truth. You know, there's a leap of faith in any belief. There's a leap of faith. There's a leap of faith in putting gasoline in my car. How do I know it's gasoline? I didn't take a sip of it to try it. The smell gives me a hint, but I still don't know. I don't know anything about chemical makeup of gasoline. But the proof is in the driving. When I put the gas in the car and I start driving, it works. Then I know I put gas in my car. But there's a there's a there's a there's a leap of faith. There's some faith that is involved. And so don't, don't think that this, believing this, is, uh, is unique to Christianity. Everything in life is a leap of faith. When you got married, that was a leap of faith. 
For some, it's a greater leap of faith than others. But it's a leap of faith. I believe that you are the person that you say you are. And I'm going to commit to the rest of my life with you. There's a leap of faith in good or bad and so on. And so I want to ask, how's your driving? How's your life driving along? And even for those who are Christians, as you look at that in your life, you say, well, my life is kind of sputtering along. It might be because you're not putting into practice the things that God told you to do. That's where your problem is. It's not that you disbelieve. It's just that you disbelieve to the point that you're not doing what he says. That's where your disbelief is. God said, do this. And we're going, ah, but I think that's a better way. That's disbelief. And so my life is not going as it should. This leap of faith, I think, as I look at this evidence that I've seen, to me it's only a step. It's just a small step of faith when I look at the evidence. When I look at the evidence of John, the writings, the documents, when I look at the evidence of God and how he is through water, through blood, through the Spirit has given us evidence, it's a small step. I've sat with my atheist friends and I've said, look, you have greater faith to believe what you believe than what I believe. It would take me, it would take me to have greater faith, a greater leap of faith, to believe that God does not exist, that Jesus is not the Son of God. One conversation I had, one of the last conversations I had with one of my friends named Scott, we're sitting at Angel's Coffee Shop having coffee together, and I tapped the wall And I said, you are saying, what you are saying is that I could believe that this wall just came into existence over time. Just just kind of just put itself together. What you are saying, how the body came together, the cells, the structure and all that, is far more complex than blocks of concrete stuck on top of blocks of concrete. For me to say this just happened would take a tremendous amount of faith. And what you're asking me to believe the body, the cell structure, much more complex, just happened, takes greater faith than this wall just appearing over a period of time. Here's the step that you have to take. I said it's just a small step. Let me show it to you, okay? Here it is. You've got to turn your back on yourself. That's why it's hard. That's what repentance is. That's all it is. It's a small step in saying... I'm living life the way I want to live life. I'm doing what I think is best. And I look at this evidence and it says that Jesus' way is best. That I can't take care of my death problem. I can't take care of my sin problem. Well, what do I do? And Jesus said, repent, which means you've been going this direction. Time to turn around and go his direction. That's it. Just a small step. We're not talking about a leap of faith. We're not talking about a big chasm you've got to jump over. And just hope that it works. I'm talking about turning your back on yourself and facing God and saying, You're, you, what you said is true, not what I think is true. And so, for us who are Christians, here's the problem. Every day when we're facing this way, the world is pulling us around this way. <laughs> Our feelings are making us turn the other direction. You know, what's going on in our lives distracts us. Money problems, family problems, whatever, it all distracts us and tries to pull us around. And so every day is a life of repentance where we turn our backs on ourselves and just take that one small step in faith 
toward God. I pray that we 